Because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please open your Bible to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, we're going to look at verses 18 to 29. That is page 1090 in the Pew Bible. So if you don't have a Bible or if you want to follow along with the translation I'm reading, there's a black pew Bible in the chair in front of you. You can turn to page 1090 if that's your first time looking at a Bible. Uh, when I say Revelation 2, the 2 is the big number, chapter number, and the, um, eight, verse 18 is the small number, okay? Brother Lance is passing out paper. If you need paper, go ahead and raise your hand, and Lance will come around and give you, or even the kids, a sheet of paper to draw. That's fine, too. All right. Revelation 2, beginning in verse 18. Write to the angel of the church in Thyatira, thus says the Son of God, the one whose eyes are like a fiery flame and whose feet are like fine bronze. I know your works, your love, faithfulness, service, and endurance. I know that your last works are greater than the first, but I have this against you. You tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and teaches and deceives my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat meat sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she doesn't want to repent of her sexual immorality. Look, I will throw her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into great affliction. Unless they repent of her works, I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am the one who examines minds and hearts, and I will give to each of you according to your works. I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who haven't known the so-called secrets of Satan, as they say, I'm not putting any other burden on you. Only hold on to what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works to the end, I will give him authority over the nations. And he will rule them with an iron scepter. He will shatter them like pottery. Just as I have received this from my father, I will also give him the morning star. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to, the God, to God. May his word dwell richly among us. Father, that's our prayer, that your word would dwell richly among us, that you would write it on our hearts, and that we would meditate on it day and night in such a way that we would be like trees planted firmly by streams of water that's well-nourished and that bears fruitful, good fruit in its season and whose leaf does not wither. We pray, Lord, that you would guide us, open our hearts, incline our hearts to your testimony to this word and not to material gain. Open our eyes to see wonderful, convicting, life-giving truths here in the text. And open our eyes to see the beauty and majesty of Jesus Christ. We pray, Father, that you would unite our hearts to fear your name. Guard us from the distractions, the agendas, the to-do list for this coming week, the, the failures and successes of the previous week. We pray that you would unite our hearts with a singular focus on you to fear your name. And we pray that you would satisfy us this morning with your steadfast covenant love in Christ, sealed by his blood, that we would rejoice and be glad in you all of our days. Help us, Father, by your Son, because apart from you, we're just wasting our time. 
So help me to preach faithfully and with love and help us to listen faithfully and with love and humility. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Some of you know the story of Israel and the story of the Exodus. Israel was in bondage in Egypt for 400 years, but they were only there for 400 years because God was preparing a promised land for them, and they were going to go into the promised land and conquer the nations there once their sin has, been, has reached its fullness, as it says. I was reading that with my kids this, this week for our family devotions, and I think it's Genesis 15. He talks about the fullness. So, so Israel was going to be in Egypt. They're going to be busted out of Egypt with the Exodus, go wander for 40 years, get to the promised land. And so God redeems them miraculously from Egypt, powerfully. He gets them through the wilderness after 40 years. And then not only do they cross the Red Sea on dry land, to get from the land of Jordan today to the land of Israel, they have to cross the river, the Jordan River. And God stops the river so they cross on dry land again. This is amazing. God is miraculously feeding them in the wilderness. He's parting waters for them. He's giving them victory in their battles. They have a destiny to inhabit this land and be God's holy people in God's holy place under his holy kingship. And so they get into the land. Their first battle is against Jericho. The walls miraculously fall down. They rout that battle without one fatality. They dominate. The next city over is the city of Ai, a small city, a weak city, a simple city. You don't even need your full army to go to this city. So Joshua, the leader of Israel at this point, Moses has passed away. He sends a smaller group of soldiers to go take out this small city as city number two to dominate. Well, this is in Joshua chapter seven. They go to the city. They battle against the people there and everyone's scared in the whole land and they lose. This small, unprepared, wimpy little city defeats the army of God. 36, I think 36 people were killed of the Israelites, and they were running scared for their lives against a small, weak city, especially in comparison to Jericho. What happened? Joshua is dumbfounded. God, you promised we're supposed to take over this land. You brought us out of Egypt. I was there. You brought us to the wilderness. You fed us with quail and manna for 40 years. You stopped the Jordan River. We crossed over. You made walls fall down. And now we lose to this city? What? Joshua was confused. So he's weeping and crying before the Lord in Joshua 7, asking God for help. And God says, get up. Stop whining. There's sin in the camp. Because God told them in Jericho, Don't, no, none of your soldiers, no one should take any possession. Destroy everything. And God says to, to Joshua, someone disobeyed me. There's sin in the camp. That's why you lost. I made you lose. So Joshua stops weeping and praying. He gets up and he, he, he goes to handle what God tells him to handle, namely find the sin and deal with it. Now we're in Revelation chapter 2, and we're talking about the church at Thyatira. The church at Thyatira has many similarities, similarities to this story of Joshua. The call to Joshua is the same call to the church in Thyatira. Get up and repent. Deal with and handle the business within your covenant community so that you can be strong to fight the enemy and conquer Satan. In Revelation, it paints the great picture of our great enemy, the, the red dragon with seven heads and ten horns who seeks to devour God's people. 
He has beasts. He has two beasts, a beast from the land and a beast from the sea, to conquer God's people. And here you have the small little, these small little churches, Bethany Baptist Church, 78 members, to take on this great dragon and the two beasts. And if the church is going to defeat the dragon, they have to deal with the sin in their midst. You can't tolerate it and act like it's not a big deal as you have this great enemy that you're called to do battle with. And every Christian deep down wants to win. Everyone, actually everyone in the world wants to win. Every Christian deep down wants to defeat Satan. They want to stop him. They want to conquer. The the whole book of Revelation, or Revelation 2 and 3 is all about conquering the enemy. Christians want to conquer. The problem is that even in our churches, we have sin. And not only do we have sin in our churches, that's every church because we're all sinners. The problem is um, God even starts to discipline some of our people. Do you know that God disciplines people, his own people as well? Do you know that? God doesn't only punish non-Christians. There is condemnation in the end, but I'm talking about on this earth, God disciplines his own people. In Hebrews chapter 12, verses 6 through 11, uh, it says, I'll just give a little quote from here, the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he punishes every son he receives. Endure suffering as discipline. God is dealing with you as sons. Now, sometimes that discipline is not due to sin. So if you're suffering right now, I'm not saying it's because you're sinning and you're hiding it. That's not what I'm saying. That could be true, but it might not be true. That's not necessarily true. But sometimes it is true. So that's why James 5, 14 and 16 says this. Is anyone among you sick? He should call for the elders of the church, and they should pray over him after anointing him with olive oil in the name of the Lord. The prayer of faith will save the sick person, and the Lord will restore him to health. If, not not always, but if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. So that you may be healed. Here, sometimes healing comes with confessing sins and being prayed over in your confessing of sins, dealing with sin inside. What if some of the pain that we are under or some of our church family are under or the pain we're going to be under is due to our sinful negligence and lack of confessing sin? Now, if you join this church, we join this church and you commit to this church as a church family because we want to bless this church family. We want to be a blessing to this church family and we want to, as a church family, bless our neighbors and the nations, right? That's why you joined. That's why you're part of a church family, to obey Christ and to bless each other, and then together as a family, bless the neighbors and the nations. That's why we're here. We are not here to cause each other to sin. We're not here to overlook each other's sins and turn a blind eye and say, am I my brother's keeper? That's not why we joined this church, to say that, to harden our hearts. Sometimes we feel... If, you're, if you've been a church member trying to faithfully take responsibility for each other's discipleships, sometimes, do you, ever, well, do you ever feel like you're just going through the motions and you're not really caring, there's not a real passion behind it, not a real concern for others or for God's glory even? I feel that way. We're too busy. We're too busy to worry about other people in the church. We're too overwhelmed with our own burdens to worry about carrying. I mean, I I feel like my my plate is so full of burdens. If I just put one other member's burden on my plate, I'm going to collapse. 
So I can't care about other burdens in the church. I have too many burdens of my own to be a peacemaker. There's conflict in the church. I don't want to jump in the middle of another person's conflict. Let them handle it. I don't need to be a peacemaker there. I got my own burdens to worry about. Well, Jesus has a word for us this morning, and he addresses us in verse 18. So go back to Revelation 2.18. Here Jesus is telling the church here in Thyatira and the church here, Bethany Baptist Church, write to the angel of the church in Thyatira, John. This is what you're to write. Thus says the Son of God. So Jesus is calling himself the Son of God, the one whose eyes are like a fiery flame and whose feet are like fine bronze. What does it mean that he's the Son of God? The fact that Jesus is the Son of God means that, that he is, you might think if Jesus is the Son of God, that means he's not only truly human, he's also truly God. God. And that's true, but when you see Son of God in the New Testament, don't think that first. Think that second. First, you should think about Son of God, which is a common title um, in the New Testament. You should think maybe like a first century person thought. Apollo... Um, Apollo was the son of Zeus. So he was not Zeus, but he was the son of Zeus. And if you were in a church in the Roman Empire and they had temple, a lot of these cities had temples to Zeus, and everyone would have known that his son, one of his sons is Apollo. And so Jesus is saying, I'm the son of God, not Apollo. I'm the truly divine son worthy of worship. But not only that, when we see son in the Bible, who, who else is the son of God in the Bible? Some of you know. Say it out loud. Who else is called son of God in the Bible? There's at least three answers. Come on, say it. Oh, okay, there's four. So, angels are sons of God, plural. But son of God, singular. There's three answers. Israel is called the son of God. Someone else said it, what? Adam is the son of God and? Well, Jesus, but there's one more besides Jesus. David or David's son, the Davidic king would be the son of God. So when you see Jesus called Son of God, not only is he truly God, he's also, where Adam failed, he's the true Adam. Where Israel failed, he's the true Israel. And where, the, where David and David's sons failed as the king of Israel, Jesus is the true Davidic king. So he is the people of God. He is the Son of God. He's true humanity, true Adam, true Israel, true Davidic king, true Messiah. Amen. He is the Son of God. And so we need to listen to him. Now, there's two descriptions of Jesus here. What does it say in verse 18? Thus says the Son of God, whose eyes are like a what? Fiery flame, and his feet are like what? Fine bronze. What does that mean? To have eyes like a fiery flame is judgment. When you think of fire, you might think of purity. But the idea here, especially in this section, is that Jesus sees everything. He knows you. He knows your secrets. He knows the obvious facts about you. He knows the hidden motives and, and thoughts and intentions of your heart. He knows the actions you've committed that no one else committed. He knows what's going on in every single church. He knows what every non-believer is doing as well. Jesus knows everything, and his vision and his perspective is piercing. He sees through you. Amen. You can't hide from him. And that is scary at first, but if you love Jesus and trust Jesus, it is actually a blessing in the end. But not only is his eyes like a fiery flame that he has penetrating discernment to see through everything, his feet are like fine bronze. What does that mean? 
Well, there's a little bit of debate here. A lot of people say the feet like fine bronze is royalty and the fact that, you know, royalty is this exalted, it's this exalted metal. So Jesus having feet like fine bronze, that might be it. I don't know. I mean, I can't be sure. But uh, Tom Shriner's view is the one I like. He, it makes sense to me. And it goes with this passage too. He talks about when you go to battle in the ancient world, you didn't have shoes like this. You didn't have sneakers. You don't have, you know, army boots. What you had were sandals. And if, you, if your sandals went out in battle, you, you're going to lose. You have no hope at that point because everything you're doing in hand-to-hand combat, you're on your feet generally, right? And so if, you're on your, and you're, if your sandals go out in battle, you're done. So Jesus having um, sandals that are bronze, they're indestructible. And then when it, what's the main symbol, especially in the ancient world, of victory? You put your foot on their neck and proclaim victory. And so maybe Jesus' bronze, um, feet like fine bronze with sandals, feet like fine bronze that are indestructible, is that Jesus is the conqueror and he's the judge. He will judge his enemies. That, that also comes later in the passage. So his eyes are like a fiery flame. His feet are like fine bronze. And Jesus tells John to do what? To write. If John is to write, what are we to do? Read. That's our job. John, your job is to write. Churches, your job is to listen and read my words. Because I see through you, and I'm the conqueror of enemies, and I judge everyone, including you. So listen to what I have written. Listen to what I have my messenger write. Let us listen to what Jesus is saying. This is also the the same message. I'm going to say this now because I won't get to the verse later. Verse 29. Every letter closes with with a verse like verse 29. Look at verse 29. What What does he say? Let anyone who has ears to hear what? What's the command? What? Listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. So the question is, are you listening to the Holy Spirit? He's speaking. Are you listening? Are you reading what Jesus had written, had dictated here to be written? If not, you're in trouble. But the overall call for those who hear is listen to the Spirit. See Jesus in Son of God, fiery eyes, bronze feet, and bow before him. Trust him, listen to him, and heed his word. All right, so what's the main goal? Here's the main goal of the passage. The main goal of this passage, that's all by way of introduction, that we need to listen to Jesus because we got problems in churches and we got a problem in every church, including this church. Here's what Jesus wants us to know. Here's his main goal. Repent and retain so that you conquer the dragon, okay? Repent and retain so that you conquer Satan. Point one, repent from sinful toleration. Point two, retain what you have in me, Jesus is saying, so that you conquer. You gotta repent from sinful toleration, point one. You gotta retain what you already have from me, point two, so that you conquer the evil one. All right, you guys ready to get through these? We'll go through these one at a time. Repent from sinful toleration, retain what you already have. So let's go to number one first. Repent from sinful toleration. Number one is repent from sinful toleration. Look at verse 19. Verse 19. Jesus says, I know your works, that your, um, I know your works, your love, your faithfulness, service, and endurance. This church is growing in love. What church forgot their first love? Do you remember that? The love they had at first. Anyone remember the name of the church? It's okay if you don't. Laodicea has the, um, Ephesus is the one with the, uh, but Laodicea is the lukewarm. 
Yeah. But yeah, Ephesus, um, they abandoned the love they had at first. That's Revelation chapter 2, verse 4. Now that church had all these other things, but they didn't have love. Does this church have love? Yes or no? Yes. This church, in that sense, is better than Ephesus. Ephesus failed in love. This church is not failing. They did not abandon their first love. I know your love. You have a desire for other people. Do you know what love is? Let me give you a good, defini- a, a good thorough, biblical definition of love. Love is finding your joy in the joy of the beloved. If you love that person, you find your joy in their joy in Jesus. That would be a Christian definition of love. I find my happiness when you're happy in Jesus Christ, the greatest of all treasures and the source of all greatest happiness. Okay, so you, you, you still love. You, you desire others' happiness. You desire other people's good. I know your love. I know your faith. You trust me. You trust when I speak and, and you hear. Faith comes by hearing. You believe what you hear. I know your service, it says in verse 19. I know your service. That you're not just Bible um, knowledge people. You serve people. You actually do things to help people. You meet each other's needs. I know that. You love. I know you believe the word. I know you actually take action. You're not just a hearer only, a knower only. You're a doer. And not only that, when life gets tough, I know your endurance. You guys don't give up. You keep going. You keep coming. You're, you don't have that seasonal obedience where you're, you're on fire for three months and then you, you stop following Jesus for six months and you come back for another six months and then you're, you're gone and you're, you're AWOL for another seven months. And you're not like that. I know that you endure. You're dependable. You're constant. You're consistent. You're tested. And not only that, this is also cool about this church. I know that your last works are what? Your last works are what? Greater than the first. What does that mean? I say this when I do marriage counseling, and a lot of people, first, when, especially premarital counseling, uh, they always look at me sideways when I first say this. I say, you know what? I hope your first year of marriage is the worst year of your marriage. And they're like, what? I was like, what's the opposite? The best year? If, if your first year of marriage is the best year, then what, what about all the other years? Right? I mean, it's all downhill from there, right? You, you should be growing. And uh, for those of you who are newlywed or you've been married, if you remember your early days when you first were rubbing the rough edges off of each other, you're like, I'm still doing that 15 years. And yeah, you might be. You will be for the rest of your life. But the first years are the hardest. Or they should be. They should, they're not always. That's not true. They should be the hardest. What does that mean? That means as you move on, you're growing. So when Jesus says, your last works are greater than the first, he says that this church is not stagnant. This church is not declining. This church is growing. They're getting better. They're doing better things. This is a good church. Love, faithfulness, service, endurance, growth. Great church. What does this mean? Well, for our church, let me just say that Bethany Baptist Church members, I'm talking to the 78 members now of this church, you are to be commended because you do love God. I mean, if I just take this list, I look at the members of our church, I could take out the the members list here and I look at all of your names here, and I think, you know, this church loves God. This church listens to God's word and they try to believe everywhere they can. This church serves each other. I see it among you. You you meet each other's needs when when you become aware of it and you're even growing and sharing your needs, which is great. This church is enduring together. I was, I, oh, I, I sort of lost it just a little bit emotionally here when we we're saying he will hold me fast because I'm looking out at you guys and I'm thinking about all the different stories of the pain that a lot of you are in and that you're still here and I see you singing 
Christ will hold you fast? You are enduring. You're a picture. When I look out, this is a picture of Christians who endure suffering and hardship. You guys do that, and, and, our, and we're growing. We are growing as a church, not just with people. I, our works are getting better. We're getting stronger as a church family. So when I see this, I want you to be encouraged. Let's praise the Lord Jesus together for what he's doing in our midst. You, brothers and sisters, you should be encouraged. You should feel, you should feel encouraged for all the different things you're going through that God is working in our midst and in you. God is working here. He's working in you. I see it. More importantly, the guy, the, the, guy, the God with the fiery flame eyes sees everything, and he knows your good works, and he commends you for it. Children, let me say a word to you, children. Children, Jesus knows your love, faithfulness, service, and endurance as well. Kids, don't obey, don't love, don't be faithful, don't endure, don't serve because your parents are watching or because your siblings are watching or because the people in the church are watching you. Don't do it that way. Jesus sees you. And his eyes are like a fiery flame. And if Jesus sees you, that's all you need. As long as Christ sees you, Christ knows that is enough. Let that be enough for you, children. Obey in Christ whether people acknowledge it or not. Yet, so, so this church is pretty good, right? But this church has some, some serious problem, a serious problem. Look at verse 20. Verse 20 says, so you have all these good things, but I have this against you. Uh-oh, you, you knew a but was coming, right? But... I have this against you. What's the sin here? You tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and teaches and deceives my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat meat sacrificed to idols. What's the, what's the sin here? In one word? They what? Tolerate. You tolerate evil. Now, if you tolerate good or you tolerate weaknesses, that's good to tolerate people's weaknesses. But tolerating evil is not okay. Calling evil good is not okay. That, that's, that's sinful. And Jesus says, some of you in this church, Thyatira, some of you in this church, Bethany Baptist Church, you tolerate evil. Or maybe even as a church as a whole, in our membership, maybe in our, our decisions as a church, from our business meetings and the decisions we've made as a church, maybe there are some ways that we as a whole church have tolerated evil. Now, do you see how love can easily turn into sinful toleration if love gets distorted? Tom Schreier writes, love may lose its strength and moral center and morph into toleration of evil. And what does that mean? It means permissiveness. You permit evil. You don't rebuke it. You don't call it out. You don't oppose it. You're just too tired. You don't want it to be on you. You don't want to ruffle feathers. You don't want to be seen as the contrarian. You don't want an uncomfortable, awkward conversation. You don't want discomfort. And in this church in Thyatira, there was a Jezebel. Now, is this literally Jezebel? No, Jezebel had died hundreds of years before in Israel. Jezebel, but there is a Jezebel-like member, maybe even a woman for them, a Jezebel-like woman in the church who was outspoken with her false thinking and teaching. And they didn't say anything to her. They didn't stop her. They didn't rebuke her. They didn't discipline her. Now, Jezebel in, in the kingdom of Israel, she had a passive husband, Ahab. 
So she was able to sneak in all kinds of sin and idolatry and compromise because her husband was weak. He was a weak leader. He was a passive man who would not lead his wife faithfully. And therefore, the whole kingdom was messed up. And so here in this church, in Thyatira, there's a woman who is leading and teaching compromise. Now, when you say teaching compromise, what do we mean by teaching compromise? What I mean by teaching compromise, at least in Thyatira, now remember, this is true of a lot of churches in Asia. They had uh, trade guilds. So if you were part of, if you were in carpentry, or you were in the fishing industry, or if you were in, um, in uh, metalworking, or whatever job, if you were a baker, if you were part of the, you know, the herdsmen, if you were in a particular guild of industry in Thyatira, every industry in the city had their own gods. And so if you're all, hey, where all the pastors are going, well, that's kind of weird because the pastors, okay, let's take them out. Um, all the fishermen are going somewhere. All the farmers are going somewhere. All the businessmen. And so you go sacrifice. You have to, like, when you come to your trade guild meeting, you have to sacrifice to the God of that trade guild so that he could bless the, bless the industry so that the fishing business takes off and we're all good and we're feeding our families. So if you're a Christian now and you're a fisherman and you go to the, to the, tra- to the trade guild and all the fishermen have to burn incense so that the fishing God blesses your industry and you refuse to make a sacrifice, guess what? People start getting mad at you. And when the fishing industry starts going down, who are they going to blame? You. You're not sacrificing. You're messing it up for the whole team. So Jezebel and other Christians have a compromised teaching. You know, you could say Jesus is Lord on Sunday. But during the week, just make the sacrifice. But don't, don't call it a sacrifice in your heart. You know, everyone else thinks it's a sacrifice to that God. But you don't have to think of it as a sacrifice. Just burn the dumb incense and just do the quick bow and then move on. And so, so some, some of the Christians are, they're teaching, you know, you could do that and it, you'll still be a faithful Christian. Well, that introduces idolatry into the Christian life. And when idolatry comes into the Christian life, so does immorality, spiritual adultery, and then even sometimes physical adultery. Because in a lot of these pagan religions, not only did you sacrifice to the gods, they were, there were a lot of temples where there was sexual immorality and there were temple prostitutes. So one of the ways you sacrifice and honor the God is by going there and paying for a temple prostitute and then sleeping with them to make an offering to the God, to please them so that they bless you and your industry. So you got Christians saying, I can be a faithful Christian, I can love Jesus, and I can still go and burn the incense and do the idolatry thing. Or I can still be a faithful Christian, and I could go and still do the temple prostitute thing and still follow Jesus, because I still believe Jesus is God, and he died, and you're justified by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, and the Bible alone is the inerrant word, and yet I can still do this on the side, because I'm still there on Sunday, every Sunday. And I still give my offering, and I still love Jesus, and I still share the gospel. It's not a big deal. It's just a little piece of the life, and it's not really influencing the rest of my Christianity. Compromise. That's the name of the game. Compromise. Tolerating compromise. That was the same sin as the previous church, the church in Pergamum. The problem in this church is you have a member of the church standing up and openly teaching this, and nobody is rebuking the teaching. It's one step worse than the previous church. In the previous church, it was just members who were kind of compromising secretly, but no one else knew. It, that's in the church in Pergamum. In this church, you have some members standing up and openly saying it. They're posting it on Facebook and Twitter and social media, and no one is rebuking them because they're still a faithful member on Sundays, right? 
And so Jesus holds this, I have this against you. You tolerate the woman Jezebel. Jezebel, she calls herself a prophetess. She's a self-proclaimed teacher. A self-proclaimed teacher. Just a, just a clue for you, brothers and sisters. Um, this, I, I think about this when I was at my previous church and we did a church plant in L.A. Um, whenever church visitors come and they meet me as the pastor and they start showing all their credentials, the, the red flag goes up and the alarm sirens start sounding off in my head. I had a guy who pulled out his ordination card and was showing me that he got or, he's an ordained minister. He started telling me all, I'm like, okay, and, and you know, he wants to join the church and like just lead the church. And I'm like, you know, to me, it's not, not only is it not impressive, it's like the opposite. It has the opposite effect. You know, um, it's a self-proclaimed, self-validated, I do this and I did this and I did this and I got this, you know, um, and that's what Jezebel is. She calls herself a prophetess. No one else is, is validating her in that regard, but she takes up her own leadership. And he, or he, take, uh, he, he, not here, but it could be in this church. It could be a male. It doesn't have to be female. A male can just stand up and start taking the lead in the false direction and be the self-proclaimed leader, teacher, faithful Christian. And there's three reasons why Jesus holds this against this church. Three reasons why it's sinful to tolerate this. Look at it. Verse 21, verse 22, and verse 23, you have three reasons, one in each verse, why it's wrong and why you need to repent. Why, the, why is this a problem? Verse 21. Here's the first reason why it's a problem. I gave her time to repent, but she does not want to what? Repent of her sexual immorality. So what is she doing? Has she been confronted? Maybe she has. She has she's had time to repent, but she's lagging in repenting. Have this ever been you? She's lagging in repenting. She's procrastinating her repentance. She's trying to push the limit with Jesus and the church. There's no urgency in her life to turn from her compromise. She's overall, here's the key word, she's overall become comfortable with compromise. Are you comfortable with compromise in your life? Just kind of there? It's always been there or it's been there lately and you're just, you just made peace with it. It's just going to be part of my life. Time to repent, but does she repent? No. She's comfortable with compromise and she procrastinates repentance. It's the first reason why Jesus has this against him. The second reason is in the next verse, verse 22. Look at verse 22. Look, I will throw her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her, I will put into what? Great what? Affliction or tribulation. Here's the second reason why this is something you need to deal with in your church. Because Jesus is not indifferent. You might tolerate it. Jesus doesn't tolerate it. What does Jesus do? He throws her into a sickbed. He throws those, her children, those who follow her, those who commit adultery with her in, in taking this compromise, he puts them into great what? Affliction. Jesus disciplines members. He disciplines Christians in the church. So if you say, I don't care, it's not my problem, I don't have to worry about it, it's not my fight, and you tolerate that evil, you're allowing fellow members who follow that teaching to be disciplined by God. How dare we be so selfish? to just care about us when other members are being disciplined because they're following a leader that we're not confronting and removing, albeit a self-proclaimed leader. Okay, so first reason why it's a problem, because she procrastinates repentance, she's unrepentant. Second reason is because there's divine discipline on her and those who follow her. The third reason why this is a problem is in verse 22, the end of verse 22 to verse 23. Unless they repent of her works, okay, so unless they repent, these people who are following her, What's, God, what's Christ going to do? Verse 23, these are chilling words. Unless they repent of her works, I will what? Strike her children dead. This is why it's a problem. Because God will kill them. 
and judge them. This is just like the previous one where Jesus says, if they don't repent, I will come against, I will come against you quickly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. That's Revelation 2, verse 6, 16. So here, same thought, Jesus will strike them dead. Physical judgment is imminent for Jezebel and her unrepentant followers. Has, has God ever killed anyone in the church, in church history, that we know in the, in the Bible for sin? Yeah. Who? Ananias. Ananias and Sapphira, Acts chapter 5. They were members of the church, probably Christians, and they lied, and God struck them dead there in front of the assembly, one at a time, two different moments. Ananias and Sapphira. In James 5, we just heard that people, some people get sick because they're not confessing their sins. In 1 Corinthians 11, 29 and 30, you know we talk about taking communion and, and making sure you drink of it in a worthy manner because Jesus, or Paul says some of you are sick and even died because you're taking communion in the wrong way. But this has been since the beginning. Eve compromised in the Garden of Eden. At Sinai, people wanted to worship God, Yahweh, but they compromised by worshiping Yahweh through the image of a golden calf. When, 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 uh, when the 12 spies went to, to spy out the promised land with God's promise of victory, 10 of them were chickening out and compromising. Yeah, I believe God can do all things, but not this. You ever said that before? I believe God can do everything, but not this. It doesn't make sense, but we compromise in that way. Solomon compromised with idolatry, and this church did as well. So why should we repent? What's the main reason? Whoops. What's the main reason we should repent? Look at verse 24. Main reason. And it's not stated as a reason. It's not stated as a reason, but it is, it is rationally a reason. So verse 24, I say to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching... I'm sorry, it's at the end of verse 23. Then all the churches will know that I am the one who examines minds and hearts, and I will give what? I will give to each of you according to your what? Works. Here's the reason why you need to repent, brothers and sisters. Here's why we need to deal with sinful toleration. Because Jesus examines minds and hearts, not just of those who are compromising, but those who are tolerating the compromise. Jesus examines your mind and heart, and he will give to you according to your works. In other words, judgment is inescapable. You will not escape judgment for your life in this church. You are going to be held accountable for your life in this church. And all the churches will know that Christ is the one who sees through everything and he holds people accountable. That's what Revelation 20, the the great white throne judgment in Revelation 20, another book was opened, the book of life, and the dead were judged according to their works by what was written in the books. And they were thrown in the lake of fire if their name was not in the book of life. They were judged according to their works. So what should we do? Repent of toleration. Repent of sinful compromise. Repent of tolerating others in the church and leaders in the church, self-proclaimed leaders, who are leading the church to compromise. Exercise restorative church discipline. That's what you need to do as a church. You need to exercise the keys of the kingdom. Are, do we rebuke each other? Do we take it from one-on-one to two and three? And do we take it to the leadership? And then do we take it to the whole church? And are we willing as a church to excommunicate members if they are unrepentant in their sin? We need to be. And let me commend you again, Bethany Baptist Church. We're not there yet, and God, may God forbid that we get there. We have, a, we have a business meeting in two weeks at 3.30. We have one of our members who's under discipline right now for sexual morality. And many of you have done an exemplary job of trying to contact her. And for that, you should be commended. Christ sees that. 
and you are being faithful in not tolerating but loving her. But not all of you have. And for those of you who haven't, Christ sees that too. And he calls you to call her to repentance in love and humility. Or just call her and say, I love you. I don't know all the details. Do you want to talk? I'm praying for you to repent. So you could say, you just say something simple like that. But reach out. Brothers and sisters, you have done that. So, so don't tolerate it, but identify the sin and help them walk through it. As a church member, guard your own heart from your own compromise in your own life. If you're not a Christian, what about you? Can you be forgiven of your sin? Will, will Jesus, does Jesus know everything that non-Christians have done? Yes. Will Jesus judge all non-Christians according to their works as well? Yes. So here, if you're not a Christian, I have bad news for you and I have good news for you. It's actually, the whole thing is all good news, but there's a little bit of bad news in the middle of it that you have to understand to, to really grasp the good news. So here it is. God is the good news. God is your creator. God is the creator. He created all things. He created you. He made you in his image. God is not only the creator who made you to have a relationship with him. God is the judge. He judges us. And because we have rebelled against God, we have sinned against God, we have not trusted God, we have disobeyed God, we have found our treasures in everything else besides God, God will judge us for our sins. And the judgment is eternal damnation in hell. That's the, that's the bad news if you take it by itself. But take it in the whole, it's good news. God is the judge. He's the creator, he's the judge. But he's not, God is not only creator and judge, God is Christ. God becomes a man, and he dies on the cross for our sins. And he rises from the dead so that, so that all those who will trust in him can be saved. God is Christ who saves sinners. God is Savior. And lastly, God is King. All those who submit to him as king, all those who would um, treasure him as king, trust him and repent from their sins and take the king's invitation, they will be forgiven and restored. Amen. So here's the good news. God the king is saying, turn from your sins and trust in me and you'll be forgiven and saved. If you're not a Christian, I plead with you to call on the Lord to save you. If you have more questions about that, I'll be standing at the back of this auditorium, the front door, and you can ask me about it there. All right, so that's the first one and the main one. Repent from sinful tolerance. Go to the second point, and it's not as long, but we still need to get to it. Uh, retain what you have. So repent from sinful tolerance. And number two, retain what you have. Look at verse 24. So there are some of you in Thyatira, I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, the compromise teaching, who do not, um, who do not hold this teaching, who haven't known the so-called secrets of Satan, as they say. I'm not putting any other burden on you. Okay, so this group of members in the church, they don't hold the teaching of compromise, that you can do the offering stuff and the pagan stuff and be Christian at the same time. They don't hold to that. They're good on this teaching. And what is Jesus saying? You don't even hold to the so-called secrets of Satan. Now, I want you guys to look up here because you, you almost inevitably have someone you've met who's, who's done this. Have you ever met somebody who says, yeah, I know you believe the Bible, but I'm into the deep things of God. Ever met anyone like that? I want the really deep stuff. The, 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 the secret, the secret knowledge. I mean, I know you could read this and you could just get the obvious, yes, Jesus died for sins, but, but what about the secret knowledge? There's Bible code stuff. There's, um, you know, the spirit talking to me directly apart from the Bible. There's other religions, secret books that are not in the canon. 
Can I, can I, can I just get that, that secret knowledge, that deep knowledge of God? Well, these people, and I guess, they, they reject this teaching. I say to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not know this, they say it's the secret things of God. What does, what does Jesus call it? The secret things of who? Satan. You think you're getting the deep things of God? You're getting the deep things of Satan, the shallow things of Satan. You got the deep religious secrets, the deep philosophical secrets. No, you got the secrets of Satan, and you think you're so wise. Well, there's some here who hold to the teaching of Christ. They're retaining the teaching of Christ, and they are not tricked by the deep things of, quote, unquote, God, the secret things. They just take the public things. It's right here in the text. And so they hold to it. There are there is all kinds of compromise in different places, even in teaching, but these brothers and sisters hold to it. So what is, what's Jesus' command to them? In verse 25 or 24, I'm not putting any other burden on you. Here's my only my request. Here's my command to you. Verse 25, only, and what's the command? Hold on to what you have until I come. So my second point could be hold on to what you have. I just said retain to make it repent and retain, but you can say hold on. Repent from sinful tolerance and hold on to what you have. Repent from sinful tolerance and retain what you have in Christ. Hold on. Don't give up. Don't give up. Even if other people in your church are giving up, even if there's prominent people in your church giving up, you must hold on, keep going, keep trusting Christ, keep discipling people, keep loving your neighbors, keep meeting needs, keep being a peacemaker, keep confronting sin, keep repenting of your own sin, keep praying for other people, keep enduring your own suffering by still saying, I believe in Jesus, and coming back here and saying, it is well with your soul, even when it's hard to sing it. Keep holding on. Retain what you have. That's his only request of you who are holding to the true teaching. Amen. Only hold on to what you have until I come. Because is Jesus coming soon, according to Scripture? Yes. He's coming quickly. He's coming soon. So hold on to what you have. As a church family, this means as a church, what is our statement of faith? We're going through that. What's our bylaws? What are we holding on to as a church, as a congregation? Let us hold on and let's come to the members' meetings and talk about what we're, what we're believing and speak up when you pass the mic around so that we hold on to what we have. Church member, hold on. Jesus is coming. You won't have to live in your tension and fight much longer. You just got 70 more years of suffering or maybe 70 more weeks or, more, or maybe 70 more days. For some of us, maybe even only 70 more hours. Life is a vapor. Jesus is coming soon. We were praying before the service, and we were just saying the same thing that, we, that I say sometimes here. You're, you're one week closer to death than you were last week. Do you realize that? You're one week closer to the judgment than you were last week. So, so what does, what does um, the author of Hebrews say? Encourage each other all the more as you see the day what? drawing near. Do you feel more urgency to encourage your church members this week than you did last week? Because they're closer to death. I'm looking at people that are closer to death than they were last week. And you will be next week if, if, we don't, if none of us die here and we're all here again next week. You will, we will all be one week closer to death. So hold on. You're just around the corner of death. All of you. I'm not talking to just the elderly. I'm talking to the babies that are crying here. Life is a vapor even for them. They're just around the corner. Hold on. Now, why? Why should you hold on? Let's close with these last three verses. Why hold on? And uh, verse 26 and 28. The one who conquers and keeps my works to the end, 
If you hold on and you repent from sinful tolerance, I, um, I will give him what? What will Jesus give the one who conquers, the one who repents and retains? I will give him authority over the what? Nations. nations. You will have authority over the nations? What else, Jesus? What else will you give me? Verse 27. And he will rule them. He will. The conqueror will rule the nations with an iron what? You'll have a, who holds a scepter? Jesus. Kings do, right? You're going to have an iron scepter. You're going to hold it over the nations. And he will, the conqueror will shatter the nations like what? Like pottery. You will judge the nations. Matt, Matthew Spandler Davison said this last week in a sermon that just blew me away. And that what he said was that um, you will have it all. If you hold on to Christ, you repent from sin, retain, retain uh, what you have in him. In the, this life is broken. When Christ returns and you get your glorified body and we're in new heavens and new earth, you will have it all. There's not one desire that you're going to have missing. You're going to reign over everything. You're going to be a king and queen of the universe. You will rule over the nations. You will hold the iron scepter. You will never die. No more tears. No more pain. No more crying. No more sin. No more brokenness. No more curse. No more oppression and being oppressed. You will rule justly and righteously and lovingly and joyfully, and you will only increase in joy minute by minute, moment by moment. Never to cease growing in happiness. That is your destiny if you repent from sinful toleration and hold on to what you have until He comes. That's what we have. That's the promise for us. He will give to us. Now notice it's the one who conquers, but He says something a little different here. The one who conquers and what? Holds to my what? Verse 26. The one who conquers and who keeps my what? Keeps my works to the end. So it's the one who conquers and keeps the works until the end. What do you mean keeps the works until the end? Do you know that we're judged by works? You're saved by grace through faith, but you're judged by works. That's what it says in Revelation 20 that he's going to judge. And it says here, he'll give to each of you according to your what? Works. Because works prove whether you're truly a Christian or not. Your works don't save you. You can't earn your salvation. That's a lie from Satan. Christ saves you. But when Christ saves you, he changes you. And you keep to his works to the end. And that is the evidence on judgment day that you are his. Amen. Repentance and faith. And the one who keeps to the works, who holds on, will have this. So why would God, why would God give authority to us to rule with him if we're sinners? If we don't deserve this, why would God give it to us? Why would God give you the iron scepter? Why would God give you the authority to shatter nations and step on them? Why would he do that if you are a sinner? Here's why. Because Jesus had all authority, yet he willingly became a man. What's the two points of the sermon? Repent from what? Sinful tolerance. Repent, right? Did Jesus repent? Careful here. I would say he did repent. Did Jesus ever sin? No, he never sinned. But when he got baptized, that was a baptism of what? Repentance. Jesus became a man identified with humanity, not only on the cross, but in the baptismal waters. He identified with sinners in the water and repented, even though he never sinned, so that we sinners can rule even though we deserve damnation. Not only did Jesus repent, what's the second one? Remain, right? Or retain. Did Jesus stick to God's plan and hold to his works all the way to the end? Yes. Yes. How? How are we going to get the iron scepter? We're going to get the iron scepter because Jesus was placed under the iron scepter. Why will we get to shatter the nations under our feet? Because Jesus was shattered under the judgment of God. 
on the cross. He was put under the scepter. He was shattered. He was broken. He, he says he's going to give us the morning star. He's the morning star who is covered in darkness for three hours on the cross. Christ takes the darkness. He takes the shattering. He takes the judgment so that we sinners can have the scepter and stand as kings and queens of the universe to come because he was crushed even though he didn't deserve any of it. Praise God for the gospel. If you're not a Christian, call on this king who gladly dies for you and rises from the dead if you'll trust him and repent. Brothers and sisters, don't worry about ruling now. I know you got a lot of troubles in this life. Don't worry about ruling now. Just be faithful to Christ and hold on. You will rule in the new earth to come. And you have the greatest gift, of Christ, which is Christ, the morning star, and you'll have him in the age to come. So repent from sin and retain what you have. Brothers and sisters, if you don't repent and retain what you have, some of our members, maybe even you, will face God's discipline and judgment. Sin will spread in our church and in our lives if we continue to tolerate sin. And Jesus will hold that against us in our negligence and sinful tolerance. But if we conquer, if we repent, and if we retain what Christ has given us, our church members will be warned and some of them will turn to Christ. Maybe even the one under discipline right now. Sin will be stopped by fresh applications of holy grace. Jesus will be pleased with our repentance and faith and our works and our fresh obedience. And we will reign with Jesus in joy forever and ever. So brothers and sisters, let's repent from tolerating sin and let's retain what we have in him so that we conquer the dragon, the enemy, the true enemy, Satan himself. Joshua, Joshua did that with the story of Achan. He dealt with the sin they excommunicated him in an old covenant sense, which is executing him. And he was faithful to repent from sin and hold on to what he has. May we do the same. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we need your power and grace. We confess that we too easily compromise so we ask that you'd forgive us. We ask that you would expose us. Show us where we're sinning. Show us where we compromise. Show us where we tolerate sin, not just individually, but as a church family. And may we turn from sin and hold on to what we have all the way to the end. Lord Jesus, you're coming soon. We pray, Maranatha, come quickly. Come today, Lord. Come tonight. Come now and end this and bring in your consummated kingdom. And until you do, by your Spirit's power, May we hold on to what your Father has given us until you come. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.